Welcome to Uncommon Sense. I'm your host, Jill Gleba, and we're talking to inspirational, common, and imperfect people just trying their best and trying to gain some uncommon sense. Conversations about money are very different depending on where or how you grew up. Brian and I discuss the 15 versus 30-year mortgage, PMI, 20% down payments, interest rates, and logical strategies to think about when you obtain a mortgage or refinance. We also discuss the age-old question of investing versus paying off a mortgage. There's more to a mortgage than just the interest rate. Let's hear what those are. Today, we have a professional guest, Brian Mutter. He owns and is a broker of Forward Mortgage. He's been in the business, oh, almost 20 years. So welcome. Thank you, Jill. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you came to help give our listeners some tips and things to watch for and maybe some mistakes that people make when they get a mortgage. I grew up, I'm going to say, lower middle class, and my parents were great parents, but they didn't know anything about money. They didn't discuss money in front of us. I don't know if they had professionals that helped them. I think my dad did his own taxes. They didn't have a financial advisor. Actually, I know they didn't have a financial advisor because when I got my license at 24 years old, my parents were like, good, could you tell us if we can retire? I was like, oh my gosh, they didn't really know. Right. So this is for all those people that they just don't know better. They don't have this knowledge. Growing up, um, the conversations were much different. And now that... I've been in business many years and I work with people that have money. I noticed their conversations about money, mortgages, wills and trusts, just things in general. They talk out loud about it, about their mistakes and what they do. Sure. And that's how they get smarter. Because I always get people saying, how, how do I learn more? How do I get smarter? Well, let's start with, you can listen to a podcast, you can read books. There's plenty of things. So thank you for helping us with this um, navigating mortgages for a little bit. Absolutely. I'm excited to have a chance to just kind of talk about some very basic mortgage questions kind of outside of a specific transaction or case. You might have examples and you just don't mention names. Sure, of course. First thing I think of right now is when we get clients coming in, I will say to them, you know, if your cash flow isn't what you think it is, but you know it's going to improve in the future, let's say it's a young couple, we always... Not always, but most times we'll advise, hey, get a 30-year mortgage. Sure. You could always pay it off in 15 years. Absolutely. What do you think about that? Generally speaking, in most cases, a 30-year mortgage is what I recommend to people, whether it's a first-time home buyer or even you have a move-up buyer. They've owned a home before. Maybe they're in a place where they're more established with their career and their earnings. What I tell people is the 15-year, yes, you'll get a lower interest rate. So you'll save over the long term in that sense by paying less interest, but you're also committed to a higher payment every month on the 15-year mortgage. Whereas with the 30-year mortgage, you have the option to pay more than your prescribed payment amount. So if your payment amount is $1,000 a month and you send in 1500 that $500 goes directly towards the principal to reduce what you owe, essentially putting you on a timeline to pay off the loan faster. But on the 30-year, you're not committed to that higher payment. Whereas on the 15-year, yes, we'll pay it off faster, but you have to make that higher payment every month. The 30-year, you can make the lower payment if money is tight that month, or if you have some extra money that month, you can pay extra. So to answer your question, the 30-year offers more flexibility. You can always pay it off on an accelerated schedule, but you're not committed to doing that. Yeah, and I think people forget about what if they have a family mm -hmm. or 
just other medical bills or whatever bills come up, it's nice to have that flexibility. No question. I mean, I just put new tires on my vehicle. It was $1,000 I wasn't planning on spending, and there it went. Boom. Yeah. You know, life happens sometimes. And so the other thing I, this is old school, and you're going to correct me, do people have to put 20% down anymore? And, and let me say why I say that. I don't like people paying that extra $185 a month for PMI insurance because people don't realize and again, I want you to correct me, but sure. I tell people, I, if you're not putting enough down and you don't have enough equity in your home, the bank makes you buy PMI insurance. Mm -hmm. That's not homeowner's insurance. This is insurance that's protecting the bank for getting their money from you. So it's correct. an extra cost to you. So do they put the 20% down? Or sometimes people cannot put 20% down. I tell them, we'll just watch your mortgage and the equity. And when it grows you can always get rid of the PMI later. So what's your opinion on that? Great question. So being able to put down 20% on a mortgage, it's a good thing because like you said, you you avoid private mortgage insurance or PMI. PMI is something that the banks are required to charge you on your loan if your down payment is less than 20%. And similar to health insurance, that premium you pay every month on your PMI, it goes into a kitty at the lender and essentially that collects all these PMI premiums is used in the event that a customer does default on one of their loans. In other words, this is to protect the banks. So if you can avoid that extra fee every month by putting down 20%, it's great. There's no reason not to. However, I would not recommend somebody wait to buy a home until they have 20% to put down on the home for a few reasons. One is it can be very challenging for a young person to save up 20% of a down payment for a home. If you're talking about a $200,000 home, they've got to save up $40,000. Yeah, yeah. And when you buy a home, this is one of the very common misconceptions I come across with first-time buyers. When you buy a home, what you owe at the closing for your initial investment to buy the home is not just a down payment. So it's the down payment, right? 20% in this case, $40,000 or $200,000 home, but you also have to bring in money for closing costs and you have to bring in money for prepaids, which is a fancy way of saying taxes, insurance, and setting up an escrow account. So for a lot of young people, it's challenging to save that kind of money. So there are options. Um, if you're a first-time buyer, you can qualify with 3% down. Of course, you would have PMI, but the PMI, I always tell folks, the PMI nowadays is not the PMI that our folks grew up with. In other words, it's in most cases, it's very, very affordable. I just had a gentleman on a $390,000 purchase. He's putting down 10%. His PMI is $98 a month. Oh, wow. So it's a lot less. Yeah. It, I don't want to minimize $1,200 a year that he's going to be paying in PMI, but if the alternative is for him to wait until he saves up the additional 10% because he's putting down 10 and that's, you know, $39,500, you know, who knows how long it's going to take him to save up another 40 grand to be able to put down 20%. So the way I look at it is it's a trade-off. You're able to buy a home sooner without, you know, having to have that longer timeline of saving. But the trade-off is you pay a premium, a literally a monthly premium for that. Well, you're paying a premium by renting somewhere and throwing that money out the window too. There's kind of the back and forth there, right? This whole inflation talk that we've been having for the past 18 months or so, it's a really good example of, there's an analyst out there who says that the 30-year fixed mortgage is the best hedge against inflation on the planet. And that's a pretty interesting way of looking at things in the sense that when you buy a home on a fixed rate mortgage, your housing costs are fixed. Yes. Your home insurance, that premium can go up or down, and your property taxes will likely increase over time as your home gains value. But the principal amount, the money you borrowed, the rate of that never changes. Whereas if you're in a rental situation, you can expect your rents to presumably increase every single year. Oh, they're getting so high. 
the cost of living is very high for the, I'm going to say middle class. Yeah. And housing affordability is, is has been a big challenge since 2020, not just in the interest rates, um, which have gone, we've seen them go from 3% to 7% or higher in the past year and a half, but we've also seen home prices skyrocket. So yeah, affordability is a big issue, but to your point, rent, when you're paying rent, that lease amount can increase every single year. You're kind of at the will of your landlord. When you have a fixed rate mortgage, your loan payment costs are fixed. The only variables will be your property taxes and your home insurance. Yeah. So it's security is what it is. Correct. So let's talk about affordability a little bit. I have a general rule. Let's not say this is for everybody, but a general rule I tell people, whatever you're making, I don't want you to borrow more than two times what your income is. Mm -hmm. But I see a lot of mortgage people are like, oh, you can afford this. And I, my eyes pop out. I'm like, you're crazy. You don't want half your income coming in, going toward a mortgage. There's too many other things that you want to save and pay for. So do you have a rule of thumb for us? Great question, Jill. So I get this question a lot. One of the first questions in the first phone call like, is, you know, I'll ask them, you know, hey, Steve, you know, have you looked at any houses? Do you have an idea what you'd like to shop for? And the, the response is, well, no, I need you to tell me what I can afford. And I think, which makes sense. That's kind of part of the pre-approval process. But I always, there's two answers to that question. I tell folks, I say, the first answer is what the bank will approve you for, Okay. But just because the bank will approve you to borrow X amount of dollars or they'll approve you for a monthly payment of Y, it doesn't mean it's going to work in your lifestyle. So I always tell folks, listen, we'll start, I'll tell you what the max limit that you can get approved for in a loan, right? That the system will approve you for. From there, let's you and I talk and discuss, does that make sense? You know, some of my favorite clients are the ones that come to me with input from their financial planner. I had a gentleman come to me two years ago. He bought a condo. He's like, Brian, my financial planner says my payment cannot be more than twelve fifty a month. We got him in the house. It was like twelve seventy five after the condo dues. He was close. Yeah, yeah. But but he was comfortable. His planner was comfortable with the decision he made. He has since gotten married. They're looking to buy a new home and he's got very firm parameters. Brian, forget about the sales price. That plays a role, but ultimately he's like, I don't care what the sales price is. My payment has to be three thousand or below. So to be honest, Jill, those are my favorite clients to work with because I want to help whomever I can. But when I get the sense that somebody is doing their best to be financially responsible, those are the people that I really enjoy working with because they ask smart questions and they make good decisions. So asking questions, that's the other thing I want to remind everybody. Ask a lot of questions. Don't be embarrassed to ask the mortgage person. Even if it feels silly to you, it's your money. They're working for you. They're working as your advisor, so you need to ask questions. So, yeah, don't borrow so much that it's a strain on your budget because emergencies will come up. I always tell people, don't drain your emergency fund when you're buying a house because you move into a house, there's all these things you want to buy, shower curtains, waste baskets. I remember when I bought my first home, I'm thinking like I was excited to go to Home Depot and buy the stuff that you need to own a home. And my mind was blown when I had to spend $40 on a trash can. This is not like a fancy trash can from my kitchen that my guests are going to see. This is like a Rubbermaid, like a big trash can that hauls bags of trash to the curb. You know what I mean? So to your point, yeah, I mean, owning a home is, it's incredibly rewarding, but it's a responsibility and it's a responsibility that has costs sometimes. We'll have a professional realtor on the show, but I have to say that you got to think about when you buy a home, you know, my son was young, single, he got a condo. And people are like, oh, well, a house is so much better. And they had all the reasons. Sure. But his lifestyle, he traveled and he worked in another country at one time. The condo worked for him. Exactly. You got to think about what your lifestyle is and such. So 
What happens if someone comes to your office and they have horrible credit? Really good question. So there are- Is there hope? <laughs> yeah, there, there, there is definitely there is hope? hope. There definitely is hope. So one of the nice things as a broker, I have a bunch of different lenders that I work with. So what that means is conceivably, there is a lender for every situation, right? Now, there's a limit to that. My point is, you know, these lenders have required minimums for a credit score, for example, right? So while some of my more traditional, what I'll call like, you know, A prime lenders, you know, maybe their credit score minimums are higher. They require a higher score to do the loan there. We have other lenders who will go down to the bare minimum, which is typically a 580 credit score for an FHA loan. That said, we have resources that we can put our clients in touch with, like credit specialists. I get the question a lot, like maybe somebody's score that we need to get 80 points on their score, right? And they say, well, Brian, you, uh, you deal with credit. How, how do I do this? And I, I chuckle and I say, listen, the best thing to do, call one of these specialists. I'll put you in touch with them. And I explain, I say, it's true that my clients all have credit reports. So in that sense, I deal with credit. My clients all also have homeowners insurance policies for their homes, but I would never advise them what kind of coverage or how to structure their policy. I would tell them to talk to the insurance agent. So my point is, we have resources for people whose credit isn't where it needs to be, and we can put them in touch. Um, and then from there, most of these credit specialists we work with take like a very hand-in-hand uh, -hand approach. So they will continue to work with the client, and while they're working with the client, because this can take 30, 60, 90, 180 days sometimes, and when they're engaged with the client, the specialists also communicate back to my office and just kind of let us know the status of the client so that we can kind of be there along with them. That's nice because you're helping them clean up their credit also and they're getting 100%. better score. And there's just so much of this with credit especially, but even buying a home, there's so much education that is kind of how my approach to the business is. Technically, this is a sales role as a, a loan originator. The majority of my time in this business was spent on the operation side, processing, like doing the actual paperwork. So what I have found is my approach with clients is essentially it's heavy on education and communication. So they'll understand why we have to do things a certain way. If we do this and this happens, then we may have to pivot and react this way. And generally speaking, they never wonder what's the next step in the process. And the reason I say that is because of what I found over the years is that by keeping people super informed, not just about the status of the loan, but about what happens next, why and how, for example, it takes a lot of the anxiety out of the situation for them. You know, buying a home is exciting, but it's also stressful because I feel like in our brains, excitement and stress are like adjacent yeah. to one another. They do. You know, so what I found is the more kind of clarity and peace of mind that you can provide the people during the process, buying the biggest investment for most people in their life, it just takes a lot of stress out of the room and it leads to a more pleasant experience. And I'm glad you said that because that's my other outside advice is I tell people, you know, discuss with them, why is this the best choice for me? And without going into it, some people have a lower down payment, so you have a different type of mortgage. Some exactly. people have good credit. And it's interesting. I love this comment. I had someone once said, oh, I love my CPA because they get me a lot of money back every year on my taxes. And I'm like, that's situational. Correct. Just because you got money back on your taxes you can refer that CPA and then another friend goes to the CPA and they don't get as much money back. That has nothing to do with the CPA and everything to do with how much money you made, how much was withdrawn, et cetera. So I'm going to say the same thing about mortgages. I tell people, listen, I love this. A lot of people will call up and they shop around for rates. 
well, how can you give someone a rate if they don't know what your credit score is and mm-hmm. how much you're putting down and what your intentions are? Obviously, one thing I learned dealing with people that have money is the more money you borrow, the more discount sometimes you get when you borrow a, a larger amount of money, yes. say over a million dollars. And you know, for the average folk, <laughs> we're not borrowing a million dollars to buy a home. And when I tell people to shop around, it's really shopping around for the person that's going to help you find what the right mortgage is or the right product. Yep. It's not the right sometimes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. It can be challenging to overcome with some with some clients. It's hard to explain that to people that every situation is a little different yeah. and every environment's different. What the interest rates are. That's hundred percent. And so the one thing, I mean, for anybody in my business, one thing one challenge can be with potential clients who are fixated on price. In other words, I'm referring to the mortgage interest rate as the price. I mean, there are other fees associated with doing a mortgage. For the most part, your closing costs on a transaction are going to be relatively the same no matter which lender you use, right? My point is the interest rate is going to be different and that's the price. So it's important to get folks to understand I never want to say the rate on your mortgage is not important. It is. It drives your monthly payment. It drives how much interest you're going to pay over the term of the loan. It's important, but it's not the end-all, be-all. What I mean is I have seen clients choose to work with one lender over another because they were an 8% cheaper. They closed on their transaction late. They had to extend the rate lock, which cost them more money. And so, in other words, when you're buying a home, especially in this extremely competitive market, Again, the rate on your mortgage is not unimportant, but it is by no means the end-all, be-all of the transaction. The most important thing in any market, especially this hyper-competitive one, is you need to be able to have a competitive offer so that you can beat out other potential buyers. And you also need to be able to close quickly and smoothly. And so in some cases, like anything in life, sometimes you get what you pay for. So you might go to the discount lender and you might save... 12 to $40 a month on your mortgage. And I'm not minimizing that money, right? That's a deal. But at the same time, you have to ask yourself, am I going to get to the closing table on time? Am I going to get there quickly, smoothly? Am I going to have a lot of heartburn and gray hair at the end of this? So it's really a full, it's it's a whole experience that you're signing up for when you hire a mortgage person, not just the rate. Yeah. And I think I've actually seen situations where people didn't get the home because their mortgage was not Done on time. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And you know, as a broker, I have a bunch of different lenders. Some rates are lower, some rates are higher. I routinely will explain to clients and the realtor, I'll say, hey, what's, you know, do we need to make an aggressive offer and close in 20 days, for example? Typically it's 30 or 45, but you know, you can stand out from other offers by closing quickly. So I explain to my clients, I say, listen, I have a lender who can close incredibly fast. Your rate is going to be a smidgen higher with them, maybe an eighth of a percent. I'll show them what that's going to mean for their payment. And it's just a very open and honest conversation. Hey, I love that. We want to be aggressive. Yeah. We want to win. But just so you understand, after we close this transaction, your buddy at the water cooler might have a slightly lower rate. But like you said, every situation is different. In the example I'm giving, if somebody has to close quickly in a 20-day time frame, there's not a lot of lenders that can do that. No, and if you want the house... That's exactly it. That's the bottom line. That's is, exactly it. It's a different world now, too, because it used to be... Well, I'll still say you don't get one house. There's always going to be another one for sale, but it's very competitive right now. There's less supply of homes and people are fighting over homes. So on that note, just a quick observation. Rates are at 7% right now, give or take 7%. A year and a half ago, they were at 3%. Obviously, we know that that has affected 
some buyers affordability. We know that some buyers have been pushed out of the market. They have to go back to renting or they have to delay their home buying plans because they can't afford a 7%. I will tell you, we still have enough buyers and little enough inventory, you know, so few homes for sale that the experience of being a buyer now in terms of competitiveness is the same as it was two years ago. Wow. So my point is, even though rates have over doubled in the past 18 months, inventory is so anemic that yes, there are fewer buyers, but there are still enough that it feels as competitive as it was two years ago. That's interesting. So far, we're telling people you might want to give yourself wiggle room on the payment and go for 30 year. Yes. That even if you don't have a big down payment, it may not be advantageous to wait around to buy a house. Mm-hmm. That you've got to talk to your mortgage professional and tell them what your intentions are, because sometimes it's, I got to get this house. And sometimes you're just shopping and how accurate are these letters that people bring to a home buyer and saying, look, I have great credit and I'm already approved for a mortgage. Are they really already approved for a mortgage? Is that a pretty reliable? I am so glad you asked that, Joel. I've had very bad experiences with this very topic. So that's why I'm asking. I wish it weren't so, but so you're asking about like a pre-approval and how valid is it, right? Yeah, yeah. I wish this weren't so, but there are as many ways to do a pre-approval as there are people who will do the pre-approval. What I mean is I have worked places where they literally, based on a 90-second phone call, will issue a pre-approval. They'll say, oh, hey, Steve, how much are you looking to afford? Mm -hmm. And how much do you make? Uh Is that salary? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And how much do you have in the bank? Okay. Your credit's good? Okay, great. Give me your email. I'll send the letter over right now. And I call that the ready, fire, aim method, Mm -hmm. right? For my pre-approvals, a pre-approval is a big deal. Everybody should treat it like a big deal. What I mean is when Brian Mutter gets a pre-approval letter for Jill Gleba that says she can go afford a house at you know X sales price with Y down payment, that's a big deal. What I mean is Jill sets her expectations that she's going to buy a home because Brian said so. Jill's realtor agrees to show Jill a bunch of homes and spend her time because Brian said she can get a loan. When Jill makes an offer, the seller and the seller's realtor Based on the fact that Brian said they can get a loan, we agree to make a sale, right? So if I give a pre-approval and the whole thing falls apart because I actually weren't pre-approved, it's bad for a lot of people, right? Yeah. I let a lot of people down and selfishly or not, my reputation in this business is everything, right? So the way that I do my pre-approvals is I have my clients fill out a loan application. They send me their pay stubs, their W-2s, their bank statements. We literally collect as full a file. What I mean is all the documentation the lender's underwriter will need once we have an accepted offer and a live contract. The reason we do that is for a few reasons. One is that I can stay with a straight face to everybody. Oh, yeah, Jill's pre-approved. We've got a full file. She's in great shape. Two is that lets me rest easily, that lets my client rest easily. And to be honest, we're going to need all those things anyway, pay stubs, bank statements, W-2s. We're going to need that once you're under contract anyway on a home. Why in the world would I wait, right? Well, as a seller, I get three offers for a home I'm selling. And if your pre-approval letter states that we have all the documents and we've concluded that, yes, they're able to borrow this amount and I get another one that doesn't have the statements and the data to support it, Yep. how do I know the difference? See, this is where the importance of hiring good professionals, so like let's say you're selling your home, a good listing agent, that's the realtor who represents the seller, a good listing agent will call the lender on the pre-approval to vet the pre-approval. Okay. It's up to the realtor 
to know what they're getting. And I, I have to say, in my instance, this is just personal, mm-hmm. selling a home, when someone presents me three offers and they're all similar, I would even go for a lesser offer if I knew that this person really had the money and they're going to get through the mortgage process smoothly and I sell my house quicker. So I'm going to tell you as a seller, I might not go for the one that offered 10000 more. I might go for the one that I know for sure is going to go through because nothing is worse to me than thinking I sold my home and then it doesn't go through. And now you got to start back over, put it back on the market. All over again. And yeah. then now people who are prospective you know, buyers for that home are going to see the realtors, they're smart. They're going to see that this was on the market, came off the market and went back on the market. And now it can lead anyone to wonder- Lower offers. What's going on with this house? Or you know what? We're going to beat up the seller. We're going to play a little bit of hardball. And Joe, I'm so glad you mentioned the scenario in which, hey, I would take lesser money in exchange for a sure thing. The example I gave earlier, the client with, uh, he was shopping for a condo. He had to be in a certain payment range from his planner, his financial planner. When he made that offer, it was a condo in Rochester. I got a call from the listing agent. Hey, Brian, just want to let you know we have multiple offers. And I said, hey, that's great. And she said, um, I just want to make sure, you know, do you have a full file? And I explained pay stubs, bank statements, W-2s. And the listing agent said, Brian, I just want to let you know uh, we have an offer for 10000 more than your offer. I said, that's okay. That's great. And she said, um, but Brian, the reason I'm calling you is because um, your offer is you guys can close in 21 days. And I said, yeah, well, of course we can. She's confirming that for her client. And right? she said, Brian, that's really aggressive. I just, I really want to make sure because, you know, we like your offer by seller. He's already out of the property. He just wants to get his money and move on. But if you can't close in 21 days, we have a higher, 10,000 more, we have a higher offer. And I explained to the listing agent, I said, I understand your concern. I said, we have a full file. We're going to need an appraisal. He has to get home insurance. We have to order some docs from the condo, uh, the association, and we need title. Sure enough, we closed in 17 days. The oh. listing agent called was ecstatic. And just my point is that's a real live example of what I explained to my clients is in a competitive market, yes, we have to make a compelling offer. People very often hyperfixate on throwing money at the offer. In other words, we'll offer more and more and more and more. And it's true that if you're selling a home, you want as much money as you can get. But a very close second priority for many sellers is how quickly and how certainly can I get my money and move out of my life? I agree with that. And also I'm thinking about, do people buy points anymore? Is that a thing? Great question. I get this a few times a week. So you always have the option to buy points. That's where you give the lender an additional fee in exchange for a lower interest rate right? So the trade-off is you pay an upfront fee at the closing that you wouldn't have otherwise paid. And in exchange, you get a lower monthly payment. And in turn, you will pay less interest over the long term of the mortgage, right? Yep. So the general thought for me is I would just weigh time value of money and say, okay, is it worth it? Exactly. Are you yeah, going to save over the long term? That's what I tell folks as I explain. One important question is how do long- Do you have the money? <laughs> do you have the money? And you know, then another question is how long do you plan to be in the home? A lot of people don't know that, but some people are like, hey, listen, I'm working on XYZ in my life and I have a plan to be in California in four years. Well, okay, then we have a horizon we can work with. But my point is the question of does it make sense to buy points? It's a fairly easy analysis. We literally look at what's the upfront cost for the points. Okay. And you're going to save how much per month? So we divide the upfront cost by the number of months. Let's say it's going to take you 40 months of reduced payment savings to recoup the cost to buy the points. So just over three years, it would take someone to recoup. Is that a good deal? So that's the first question, right? 
in this climate, in this higher rate environment, my response to folks is to, you can do whatever you want, right? I'm here to give the advice, but it's you- your call. Correct. It's your loan. It's going to be your payment. My inclination is don't go crazy buying points right now. What I mean is, so let me say points. Um, well, the point, interest rates might get lower in the future and you can always refund. That's it. exactly it. So in other words, you're better off to save the money that you would spend on points now, save that money, keep it in your pocket, and essentially redeploy it on a refinance down the road when rates get lower. In other words, if we talk bang for buck value for your money, a good idea. you're going to get a lower rate on a subsequent refi. By the way, very likely not paying any points on the refinance, just paying your standard closing costs. But yeah, the trade-off, you're going to get a greater rate reduction for your money by waiting to refinance than you would be to be aggressively buying points right now. And there's always ebbs and flows at the market. It's going to lead to another topic, but there's always going to be ups and downs in my industry and yours. People have to realize you go a little bit with the ebbs and flows. And I know people come to us and say, should I refinance? And I think that's going to come up let's just say five years from now, yep. there's probably a bunch of refinancing if the interest rates go back down. Yep. So here's the other argument. I get a lot of people will say, and by the way, this is a emotional besides just a practical discussion. Sometimes people will say, look, I just want to pay off my house as quickly as possible. Now I have no obligations, helps them sleep better. Sure. Not a bad way to go. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a 3% loan, you're writing it off. Maybe you're not because of the standard deductions higher now. But my point is, if someone's going to loan me money for 3% cost, and instead I keep my money in the market, I don't pull my money out of the market to put down on my house. I keep it in the market because I think I'm going to make, over the long run, over a 10-year period, I'm going to make more than 3%. So if I invest the money and I fast forward 10, 15 years, I'll have enough money to pay off the mortgage with just my investment interest. Now, let's go back and forth for a minute. It does make people feel better not to have debt. So I'm sure. not going to knock that. That's not a bad way to go. Fundamentally, unemotionally, is it the wisest thing is to take all the cash you have and have it sit in your house? No, not in my opinion, because a house is going to go up in value regardless of how much you have in there. Correct. And if someone's going to loan me a couple hundred grand at 3%, I'm going to let them. <laughs> That's exactly, you know. So it's kind of a back and forth because fundamentally, it's not a bad idea. Now, now we talk about interest rates now at 7%. Correct. It's a different it's a analysis. Different discussion, right? This leads me to a question I get a lot is, as I deal with, with younger homeowners, for example, though, I get the question a few times a year of like, hey, Brian, you know, my daughter's going to be out of daycare next year, so we're going to have another 1200 bucks a month uh, in disposable income. Should I use that to pay down my mortgage and we can pay it off faster? Can you show me what that looks like? And this is where it always becomes a conversation about, first things first, Mr. Customer, do you have a financial planner? Because I can provide the answer. I can show you what that's going to do to your mortgage balance, your mortgage liability balance by paying it aggressively down. And we can show you, you know, at what point you'll have it paid off, how much quicker than 30 years or 15 that's fine, but the other half of the equation is, what if you redeployed that, in this case, $1,200, what if you redeployed that into the market? In other words, talk to your planner and see, and I can show you what it looks like on the mortgage over a term, but you should have your financial planner also work up the same thing with the same amount of money in the market because, and again, that's two years ago, that was a different proposition 
with somebody at 3% mortgage than it is now if they're at six and a half or seven. But my point is, this is where the kind of um, interdiscipline approach is important. In other words, like, yes, I do mortgages. That's how I provide for my family. That's a service that I offer to my clients. But I encourage my clients to think of me as the center of their financial universe. I don't sell life insurance. I couldn't tell you anything about a term policy or a variable universal policy, but I understand that they're important. And so that's why it's important that I have a good network of related professionals who can help my clients in these sort of important financial decisions that might not be related to the mortgage or they might be. You know, and that leads to in the book we cover in one of the earlier chapters, the cash flow discussion. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a dream board. You know, what's happening in the next year, what's happening in the next three to five years, three to eight years, and then your retirement. So you have different boxes or areas that you put your extra money. Yep. If you have credit card debt or bad debt, you want to get rid of that. And do you have money in the bank? And so this mortgage fits into all these things that are going on. So the thing I want to explain to people is you want to be smart with your money. You work so hard. You work, some people work 40, 50 hours a week. And then I will always ask a crowd, well, how many hours a week do you spend looking at what you have and discussing with your spouse or even with yourself? What are my goals and what's coming up and what should I be doing with my money? The reason I spent time with you today for a mortgage is because mortgages are kind of permanent. I mean, yes, you can refinance and such, Sure, but it's a huge undertaking to get a mortgage. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of time and it costs money and it will cost money to refinance later, Correct. which is a whole, and, and in other words, the discussion will continue. Exactly. It it's another consideration. Ends. It's like fixing up your home. You get done with one room and you've got the next. It's yep. never going to end, right? Mm -hmm. By the time you're done with the last room, the first room it needs to be updated again. Exactly. So this is kind of off the cuff, a little bit different. But do you help people with mortgages out of state? Currently, no. I opened my own company late last year. And I personally am licensed to do loans in the state of Florida, but my company is not yet licensed to do loans in the state of Florida. So currently just Michigan until I get my company licensed to do business in Florida. So I was going to mention to people, if you have some special circumstances, I do know, Brian, that you can refer out to other people that can help. So there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. How about business owners? Business owners are a whole different ball of wax when you're getting a mortgage. Yeah, 100%. Yes. You know, for business owners, they face a few challenges. The most common challenge that we see is one of two things. Generally speaking, lenders want you to see, they want to see two years of tax returns uh, for the business, right? The reason they want to see those is because the lender calculates your income based on what you told the IRS you made, right? So my point is I've had clients who tell me on a phone call, they cleared $80,000 last year in their you know one-man law firm. I've gotten the uh, tax returns that show they netted 35000 right? And in cases like this, I've had people say, oh, yeah, you know, m my CPA just minimizes my tax liability. What if we get a letter from him that says what I really earned? And I explained to the client, I said, no, we already have that letter. It's called your tax returns. So my point is for new business owners who maybe don't have two years of tax returns, that can be a showstopper for a, a conventional Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan. We do have some programs where rather than qualifying based off of uh, tax returns and profit and loss, they're qualified strictly based on cash flow through their business bank accounts, right? Essentially revenue minus expenses for the last 12 months. So we do have some programs that are what I call non-traditional loans to help people who are uh, business owners, maybe people who are uh, self-employed similarly 
or maybe folks who are like a high net worth retired individuals, these kind of things. I agree because income isn't everything sometimes. It's Correct. As people are taken out of investments and it doesn't show as income because it might be Roth money. That's exactly uh, it. Business owners also, just something to note, they sometimes don't take a lot of income. They throw it back into the business and they pay for a lot of things with the business. So their expenses yep. are lower, like their car and mm-hmm. uh, phone and et cetera. So this is very helpful that people realize there's a lot of choices in mortgages. You want to do what's right for you. It's okay to talk to your neighbors about what they did and why. It's okay because they might have reasons they did something and it might be something that will be helpful to you. Yep. The whole reason this podcast and my book is to get people to open up a little bit, talk about money, help each other. But don't take advice from your neighbor or the water cooler. Sure. What, like you said, you don't have to take advice. It's but dangerous. It, 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 yeah. It's good to get input and you know hear how other people's experiences were. But like you said, just because your neighbor you know, did his transaction a certain way, it doesn't mean that your circumstances are remotely the same. I agree. So if anyone has any questions, maybe they're not even going to buy yet, but they have questions about mortgages. Should they refinance? Um, how much should they borrow? I mean, the best way to get to know a professional is really to call them up and ask some questions, see how they answer the questions. And you could choose your professional based on personality traits, also honesty and, and whether you get along well with them. Because I've always said, you're only as good as who you ask advice of and you want people that you can trust. So this is how you can get a hold of Brian. If you have any questions about mortgages, you can call or text him at 248 956 0445. And you can also email him and look for him at goforwardmortgage.com. So G-O-F-O-R-W-A-R-D mortgage.com. That's where you get hold of Brian. And I want to thank you for the tips and everything helping us. Thank you very much. Jill, thanks for having me on today. And I think what you're doing with the book and the podcast is just awesome. I'm similar to you in the sense that we grew up, I was probably upper middle class, I would say. My father was very successful. I had no clue of it when I was a kid. I just knew that like we didn't want for new clothes for school, right? And you know, my folks are very financially astute, but I was never brought into these conversations. And oh, wow. I, I'm lucky enough to have started in an industry where I was kind of put with a lot of professionals where I've learned this kind of thing. But I think that what you're doing with the book and the podcast is just great. So I guess it, it is helpful people, even if they're above middle class that they weren't taught either. Correct. Well, there you go. That's why we're here. So thank you. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for listening to Uncommon Sense. I'm Jill Gleba. For more stories and all the financial knowledge you wish somebody had taught you, you can find my book, Uncommon Sense, at jillgleba.com. If you're looking for a career change and you're not sure where to start, the Resume Rescue can help. Sure, there's no such thing as the perfect fit for everyone, but here at the Resume Rescue, we're on a mission to find the perfect solution for you. Whether it's changing careers, updating a resume, learning LinkedIn, or practicing interviewing, we have you covered. Find us online at theresumerescue.com and find all of our contact info in our show notes.